on February 7, 2023, our organization called CWS organized a virtual site event during the UN Commission for Social Development, 61. The event was titled The Necessity of Inner Development for the Full Achievement of the Sustainable Development Goals. Hope you enjoy this edited version of the event. This is a podcast called Walk, Talk, Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Bloom, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Um, yeah, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, because we, we have folks from all over the, the globe. Uh, my name is Maurice Bloom, and I'm the Chief Sustainability and Impact Officer of an organization called uh, CWS, Church World Service. We are more than 75 years old. I have not been there from the beginning, but um, so... You know, our, our, our session today is part of the uh, 61st session of, of, of the UN Commission for Social Development, uh, or CSOC uh, D61 for the insiders, that started yesterday. And what it's trying to do, it, it's looking at the progress on the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, but specifically goal number 8 and 10. What I hope today that uh, we will do is to look at, you know, why are we not making sufficient progress and and uh, i've been fascinated by a, an increasing group of people that is saying you know one of the reasons why we are not making the progress on the 17 sustainable development goals as we should have is because we did you know we never really paid proper attention to the skills abilities and knowledge uh, that you need as a as a individual and as a community so um what we are uh, going to try to do today is we have an, is an awesome we have an awesome panel. We're going to ask them to uh, share their pain points in you know in their work. We have asked them to share those pain points with the lens of the IDGs of the inner development goals because this group of growing group of people that says okay we really need to work on these uh, on that capacity as an individual and as a community they came up with five inner development goals. The first one is being, then thinking, relating, collaborating, and action. So I asked, I will ask the panelists to share their pain points for keeping the ITG lens in mind. I think it's important to, to share a little bit of the methodology as well. Then I've also asked them to, um, to yeah, we are going to use a kind of gestalt theory, which means that we're not here to give each other advice, but to really listen carefully and what you hear the other people sharing and, and saying, and then kind of respond with an experience, a story that uh, the, the panelists have, have, you know, came across in their careers and their lives. Um, I'm really delighted with the guests of today. 
And we had beautiful slides that we made of every participant, but I'm, I'm not going to go there now. So my apologies to Diana that I didn't show that. Um, but I'm going to ask um, all the panelists to introduce uh, themselves, quickly share a little bit about uh, their background, and then also share the pain points. So it will be around two, two minutes, three minutes per uh panelist and now i realize this is not very nice but i'm i'm i had asked michael to start so so michael normally as gentlemen should go second but i'm asking you to start and and uh ex you know explain to the audience who you are and what you do and and share the pain point well thank you maurice and thank you uh to the you know fellow panelists and those on here it's just a pleasure to be with you and to be invited to be a part of uh, this esteemed group and, and this really important uh, conversation together today. My name is Michael Trice, as Maurice mentioned. I serve as the director at the Center for Ecumenical and Religious Engagement at Seattle University in, in Washington State on the far west coast of the continental US, where I also serve as the Spare Halligan professor in my field. My field is uh, I would say interdisciplinary and at core, working across cultures and structures. We work with leadership executives, with artists and engineers, and also sociologists, theologians, and more. And in both my body of research and teaching, that's how I like to direct the center with a kind of multivalent approach. Earlier in life, I served as the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America's Associate Executive for Ecumenical and Interreligious engagement and got my start professionally by working in death penalty appeal and in uh, addressing issues of voting district gerrymandering in the state of North Carolina and the U.S. Uh, in terms of a pain point, if you'd like me to say a word about that, that we're responding to everything that we've created at the summer at the center and the conversations really about my, uh, our, my role as, as a leader, how I understand our community leadership through the center and our program design, all of that has been pretty dreadfully impacted by uh, by the pandemic, which we've been referring to as really a pandemic age um, because of the massive inequalities and, and unevenness, sure, that we see around the world from the distribution of vaccines to you know a renewed uh, focus, thankfully, on racial injustice. But I think, you know, in addition to that, there are other pain points that are impacting like kind of rivers through our work. I'll just name two more briefly. One is the rise in hate speech. Um, the, for instance, the anti-Judaic or Semitic diatribes, the anti-Asian rhetoric we see, what's reported from the Southern Poverty Law Center or other or, uh, international organizations and indices are showing us a societal confirmation bias and allowance for hate rhetoric uh, that's taking up residence and root. Uh, not only in the United States, but we see it also in, in Brazil, the UK, India, and other, and other uh, countries. That's concerning. That's concerning to everything we're doing in the center. And that is a, a certain pain point. The other, and I'll just be very brief here, is the global rise in mental health crisis of youth. I was reading, uh, many of you may have read this as well, uh, that uh, in uh, a recent report uh, that in February of 2022, a rise of teenage girls in the United States alone who had attempted uh, suicide or thinking of attempting suicide, I should say, had risen 50% in that age group from, from the year previous. That's just unconscionable. We know we're facing an endemic and uh, and that pain point with youth is, um, is serious. It's impacting everything that we're doing in a university context. 
Thanks, Maurice. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks, Michael. And and um, yeah, I mean, and, and thanks for for raising those points. And and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to further conversation on that. That's that's really something that's close to my heart as well. Um, Portia, you know, I'm, I'm really delighted to have you as my colleague from South Africa, um, working for Church World Service. The first time we meet uh, through Zoom, uh, it's great to have you. So, so please introduce yourself. You know, uh, tell a little bit uh, about the work you do, and then share uh, your pain point as well. Hello, everyone. First of all, thank you so much for this great opportunity to be here. I don't take it lightly. I really, really appreciate it. Um, my name is Portia Tengani, currently a project manager at Churchill Service in South Africa. Um, we are currently um, implementing a project in South Africa that is called the Self-Reliance and Social Cohesion Integration. Um, so the program aims to increase self-reliance through social and economic empowerment amongst mostly migrants and local South African communities. We also aim to build upon local networks of support um, for social and economic integration and for the protection of the vulnerable groups, um, which means that our program is, is mainly focused on connecting refugees to employment, as well as vulnerable South Africans, helping them to develop their own goals, careers and businesses. We are also doing this by building networks, um, leading workshops and equipping participants with the tools that they need in order to be successful in South Africa. And um, some of our program activities include training and support um, on life skills and work readiness and employability um, programs. We do employment case management with individual participants. We also train our participants on small business training. We um, fund or offer seed grants for them to be able to grow or start their micro businesses. We advocate for the rights of migrants in South Africa, as well as advocating for the LGBTQI community. And we also are very, very big on social cohesion, um, encouraging social integration and inclusion of migrants, especially within the communities that they live in. Um, we also do language, um, language training. And um, sure, I have so many pain points, but um, I think they boil down to one, which is the growing hopelessness amongst our participants. Um, them not feeling like they are not good enough um, to be able to succeed in the country and feeling, yeah, just mainly feelings of hopelessness, I think. That is my main pain point at this moment. Thank you so much, uh, Portia. Just a quick request to the participants, if you just came in, if you can type maybe your name and, and uh, you know a little bit of background, that would be great. I, we don't have time to introduce you, but we have a cozy small group so it feels kind of awkward that we, you know, we are in this room and we don't all know each other. So if you could do that, it would be great. Uh, uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, Warda, 
Great. Hi. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Warda Khalid. Uh, I currently work as a foreign affairs officer at the Department of State um, in the Middle East Bureau, working in the Office of Regional Multilateral Affairs. But today I'm speaking here in my personal capacity. Um, you know, my background uh, varies between foreign policy and refugee and immigration work. I worked at Church World Service as a media relations manager there, um, focusing on the um, the refugee situation related to the Muslim travel ban, uh, very much so. And so um, I also previously worked at the Department of Health and Human Services in their Office of Refugee Resettlement, working on Afghan family reunification, um, and did some foreign policy, Middle East policy work with the Quaker lobby in DC as well. Um, you know, one pain point for me is that kind of encouraged me to go into this career is Islamophobia. And uh, I know Michael kind of alluded to some of this when he was giving his introductions, but it really touches on so many different issues, um, just like xenophobia and anti-Semitism, et cetera, does, um, whether it's domestic policy or foreign policy. And, you know, I started kind of in the domestic sphere, focusing on it and realized how much it was impacted by foreign policy, which is what made me want to pursue foreign policy. Um, so when I look even just specifically in the refugee resettlement space and kind of the double standards that we see in the public between refugees who come from Muslim majority countries or African countries versus refugees that come from Ukraine, um, you know, it's 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 stark and it's sad because you know, all refugees are kind of in the same situation where they're being forced to flee a place, their home, um, because of natural disasters or political issues or whatever. Um, but they're perceived as different because of where they came from or what they look like. And, you know, that that is a big problem in, in, in our work. And it's a challenge that we face. So when it comes to asking for policies, you know, we want to make sure that they're all treated equally and that they're all, all given the benefits um, that each refugee is given, whether it's about entry or post-resettlement benefits, et cetera. Um, and then I see this also in the Muslim civic engagement space. So I also lead an organization. I'm the board chair of Polygon Education Fund, which is a nonprofit I started to get Muslims engaged with Congress. Um, and Islamophobia is a big issue we tackle um, because the, how there are policies, many of them post 9-11, that impacted Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities um, by falsely, you know, kind of conflating them with the 9-11 attacks um, and then taking away these basic civil rights that all Americans should be given, you know, the right not to be, you know, have surveillance on you, to be able to pray as you wish, worship as you wish, etc. Um, and so, these types of policies really risk that. We've seen many cases go to court about that. So I will stop there and say that's kind of, you know, a pain point. And I know um, that kind of goes with one of the goals of relating and caring for others in the world and just treating people equally and no matter what they look like or what background they come from. Great, Borda. Thank, thank you so much. and and. Although it, it seems maybe like a shameless self-promotion, but while I was on, on, on the podcast that I have, uh, Walk, Talk, Listen, and I really think you should listen to that because, yeah, she's, she's an amazing uh, woman and she has a lot to say. So please check that out. Well, I'm uh, really happy that you're here. So thanks a lot. Sophia. Thank you. Um, so I'm Sophia. I've been working um, the last number of years in different 
roles and positions in the UN, uh, but currently I'm working with two different, but I think closely related teams within the UN Development Program. Um, one is a small team in our regional bureau for Asia and the Pacific that focuses on leveraging this discipline of strategic foresight alongside others to help make our institution and the governments and civil societies we support more anticipatory and futures oriented in the ways we kind of plan and make decisions. Um, and then the other team I work for is called the SDG Integration Team based in headquarters. And I specifically support on a series of kind of learning programs and network and capability building initiatives to bring more what we're calling awareness-based modes of systems change into our core ways of working. Um, and in terms of pain points, I think somewhere in the previous agenda, you had worded this as what breaks our hearts. So when it comes to SDGs, so in thinking about it from that lens, what came up for me is kind of the ways that we often devalue the role of community um, and have kind of constructed systems of focus too much on the value and power of the individual as kind of the core unit of change. And the harm in this being that we also disregard the many forms of violence that originate essentially from the ways we perceive and relate to each other, which I think is directly connected to the intentions of the inner development goals, but I think actually also a bit of a challenge to them in making sure that in doing this necessary work of bringing attention to the need for interchange, that we aren't kind of replicating worldviews that frame the individual or self as something that exists outside of the social, and that oftentimes interchange is only made possible through our relationships with others and the world. Um, and in that, I think about also the wisdom and epistemologies we often marginalize that operate from this relational and community-centered ways of understanding the world and change from different indigenous wisdom traditions to religion to Black feminist traditions. Um, and I hope we can use more of these to help you know, not use them at a superficial level and co-opt them, but actually shift the balance of power. Great. Thanks, Sophia, for that. Um, Diana, Medicaid, you, you give me messages about the time, right? Because I already maybe got carried away about listening to all the all the great guests. Um, Michael, and, and, you know, just for your information, the reason that I'm really focusing on Michael, because I did not do justice the last time I asked him to be on my panel. He was totally at the end and he had to summarize everything in one minute. So, um, Michael, can you please take us, you know, in a, in a deeper dive uh, around the pain point uh, that you shared with us? So take one of those because you you listed a couple, but take one and, and uh, tell us a little bit more. Well, the... Um... Uh, yeah, thanks, thanks, Maurice. It's uh, amazing what you how what you can summarize in a minute from a thirty minute presentation, and when you have to get really specific. I, I mean, I think um, you know to your to your point in terms of where we are with the halfway point with the uh, the SDGs, the IDGs have been critical for responding to all these pain points. And I, you know, my I, our emphasis of the team has been on all five of these, but the one that I've chosen that's just been critical for our work, and I think for our students, has been uh, this question of being. What's the nature of one's relationship to oneself? That's always a question of cultivating authenticity within oneself, of addressing the kinds of microaggressions that are taking place that are either kind of intrapersonally inhabiting or that are coming at one externally, and how does that um, how does that get nested? And then how does that get extracted or addressed? And, and for us, you know, we really wanted to make sure that we were also uh, addressing the kind of what you know, Portia mentioned as a growing hopelessness. And there's a lot of a, a sense of a, a world that feels increasingly coherent, incoherent uh, for, for many people. Certainly, we're seeing that across the demographic in the university and higher education. A lot of young adults who are wondering about how they place their world together. They're not necessarily asking questions of one religion over another. 
They're asking, how, you know, what are going to be the basket of values that are going to shape how I'm going to further my uh, my life? And, you know, as as was mentioned by Sophia with epist- you know, epistemology, what is going to be the guiding epistemology for the rest of my life? So, so I think, or even for the next five years. So I think addressing that growing hopelessness was really important for us. And I really appreciate uh, how that was uh, identified as well. So what, we, what we've done in all of our programs and uh, in all of our uh, uh, webinars and, and bringing in speakers is to shift the way we think about resources by making sure that we're not creating responses to those pain points external, but we're inviting those who are experiencing the woundedness into the room to create these themselves with us. We have the resources to be able to do that. So for instance, we uh, address this by creating a religious literacy free online course, which is uh, at heart really about responding to the the, the kind of rhetoric that's been damaging us in society and instead seeing the neighbor with an open posture of wonder and awe uh, rather than co-opting narrative or um, or looking for confirmation bias that just acknowledges one's groupthink, where you check a box and say, um, "That's what I've always believed about this particular segment of the population, and I'm I'm not going to uh, to learn anymore." So in this in this religious literacy online course that we created with these students, what we learned was that, for instance, faculty should uh, write the lectures but not present them. So students memorized the lectures and performed them themselves. And when they took control of the lecture and performed them in their own words, other students listened differently as well, as did faculty. The institution showed up uniquely. I think that sense of cultivating the inner life that's a part of the IDG1 is how we responded to that particular pain point directly. How can we enhance a deeper sense of relationship to the self in everything uh, that we're doing? Another that we did, I think this is also congruent with a sense of a, of, of a rising hopelessness, is to arrest the idea, if we can, of um, uh, cognitive dissonance that takes place often with too much information that's that we're just experiencing every day from social media. So we want to make sure that we had a resource that addressed this pain point so that you could go through a course like this. And the structure of it actually was a safe psychological space. It was welcoming. It had a certain, you know, coloration matters, the hues matter. It invited people through a journey to actually the arc of a day from twilight to twilight through these five modules. And it it asked them to engage the subject matter to address some of the um, kind of rankling feelings that they were having, but to do that in a way uh, that felt like it could be like it wasn't so overwhelming. And those discussion areas also came with. You know, expansive images that accompanied this kind of repeatable design that tempered down cognitive distance where we could, uh, placed safe space as a premium for reflection and engagement in all of our resources, and introduced a place of non-reactivity, but where you could still have honest, authentic kinds of conversations. Um, I think the next point I would make in terms of this resource, and I mentioned this before, but this global sense of accountability that's a part of IDG1. Uh, we, we take that seriously too. It's also really important to the strategic directions of the university for enhancing the student experience by cultivating increasing access. And we know that that's central to where we are as a university. It's also true across the Jesuit University networks. There's 27 universities in the US that are from the Ignatian tradition. There's 108 
uh, internationally. So we're kind of in that orbit of a response where this resource is made available to students. And what we fostered there in terms of this global sense of moral accountability was again, based on a sense of wonder of the neighbor by listening to the stories of one's, of one's neighbor in their own terms. Uh, so that meant a lot of podcasts and a lot of audio and a lot of writing and a lot of creating new capacities we didn't have before in order to make sure that we were hearing adequately. So we ended up bringing in the Interfaith Observer into the center and creating a, a laboratory in the center. So what happened fundamentally by responding to pain points is that we had to recreate ourselves as a center, not just programs. We had to rethink the whole structure. We spent the last two years reinventing ourselves for what we think is actually the swell of response to this pandemic that we haven't seen yet, but that's actually still coming mm -hmm. and that uh, we're trying to prepare for. So I think that the final analysis of this for us has been, if, if we're in a, a, a climate right now that we're hearing from scholars, practitioners, students, from those who are colleagues across industry, across fields, about this, this sense of a kind of dire situation. Yes, there's hopelessness. There are other areas where things are beginning to work well, but but I, I'm not Pollyannic about that. I tend to be really kind of a pragmatist about where we are. If, if that's happening, then, then we're preparing as best we can. I think I have a moral responsibility to do it in this center, uh, to do that effectively uh, in, um, in the center that I'm running alongside others. So I hope that gives enough about both the pain point and how we're how we're trying to respond uh, effectively to it. Okay. Thanks, Michael. And I really um, would encourage, you know, um, all of you to check out uh, the, the website of the center where you can find all those materials as well. And, and uh, Michael, maybe you can type it in the chat so people can, can uh, search for that. Any um, clarifying Questions for Michael from the panel. If I, I can start maybe with one, and that's that's Michael. Um, do we? I mean, do you think how big if the if COVID would not have happened, how different would your situation would have would have been? Do you think you have any any idea? Some quick uh, response to that. I think the the unevenness of the pandemic, if we're paying attention to how it has impacted uh, communities of color, how it's uh, had a, a very uneven global impact, how it has um, shown a light on the the kind of racial inequalities and fundamental justice issues for a, a large quarter of the population that wasn't aware wasn't really aware that those were even happening. I'm just speaking of the US context for a moment. It seems seems fairly perhaps for some difficult to believe, but I think that's you know, that's that's true. And also the reaction to it now today with white Christian nationalism, that is, I would say a kind of pendulous reaction to that, which has dire, you know, which is something to pay attention to for for some of the reasons we've we've we discussed around Islamophobia, as we've heard around Islamophobia and, and also um regarded the other kinds of uh, hate rhetoric and bias that's taking place. Um, I think it was an accelerant. This pandemic accelerated uh, so much that needed to 
come out into the open. I'm not at all uh, wishing that a pandemic would take place. We are, I think, on the, you know, we're on the ruin of a lot of harm and loss and pain and 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 lost lives. Okay. So I don't say that lightly. I just mm -hmm. think that what's happened for centers like mine, if we're paying attention, is that we really needed to respond and respond quickly and with moral responsibility. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. Anybody else clarifying questions for Michael's deep dive? Porsche, yeah. I saw you being unmuted. Oh. You're good? Okay. Sophia? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this question, but I think it's interesting the work you've done around, like you were saying, moral responsibility, specifically through a sense of wonder through the neighbor, and that some of your mechanisms for doing this, you mentioned podcasts and writing. Um, I think for me, it's always the challenge is always around how do we, I guess, measure some of the effects of these, these initiatives on things like how do we measure like the capacity for wonder or what it results in for relationships? I guess specifically in thinking about how you get an institution to value some of these things, which in and of themselves, like a podcast, maybe they're thinking of it in a specific context of what the end goal is. And maybe it's hard for them to see the link between that podcast and the long-term kind of goal that entails many things to get to this place of moral accountability and wonder if this makes sense but yeah it's a big question but if there's any thoughts about that uh i i absolutely appreciate this question because i think if i'm reading it correctly and in, in in the way that you so clearly said it i think it's a it requires a, a, a massive systems change it's not just about you know wonder as something that i might um i might have a curiosity toward and, and have a privileged sense of spending five minutes around but what happens when an institution or an entire tradition makes wonder a fundamental value? And then how do you, to your point, how do you measure it? I think that's, you know, I think that's the, I think it's the critical question. And for us at the center, what we've, what we've done is uh, we've created patterns or possibility for patterns. So we, uh, we don't just create one thing. We'll create like 30 different kinds of narratives where we're looking at how wonder shows up. How do we understand our fundamental relationship to the neighbor? And then we'll see if a pattern emerges both for uh, usability, uh, when is it used, and um, by what audience, by what demographic. That's one pattern. But that's more external facing. Internally, uh, I, we bear a responsibility reminding our organization and all organizations that if their fundamental values are inclusivist, then that that's an open door for a, a larger conversation that to my mind always moves towards structure. So great, let's have the conversation. And then what does that mean for how we drive, you know, put some kind of pins in the, in the wall that says, this is the structural representation and distinction because of that. And, uh, and that's just become, I think that's a part of our, of our fundamental responsibility at the center to be able to do that with all of the partners internally so there's two different kinds of ways, but I think it's I think it's a I think we'll be doing that my whole career and 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 long after. I think we're always trying to find the best measurement mechanism for whether this is working and how do we know. Okay, um, I would like to go now. You know, asking the, the panelists to share a story um you know that might be relevant in this particular uh, context and it might be a learning for us who would like to start 
I, I can if you if you uh, because I know this is might be overwhelming, but uh, you well, want me to start? Oh, Doro, yeah, go ahead. Well, um, quick, though. <laughs> so yeah, um, go ahead, Mr. Trice. Um, your words really resonate in the um, special education field. Early childhood is is my field, and there was um, really a big um, gap in. Um, accessibility to education for special education students. And we we see the data, but I, I lived it. And it was really hard to um, get the services that these um, children need. So your your words are like echoing of the experience during the pandemic and the, um, the remote learning and how a lot of students did not receive and continue to um, not be able to receive the services that that they need. Thank you so much for that, uh, Laurel. Um, let, let me, you know, I, I don't want to, to dominate, but I, 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 I would like to share this particular story because I, I think it's, okay, you have to decide if it's relevant. I, I worked for an HIV AIDS intervention program um, with uh, sex workers. And we really, you know, try to put uh, the women we worked with front and center of the intervention. And, uh, you know, they, were exposed to um, legal their legal rights, um, you know, um, where to go to to treat uh, sexual transmitted diseases. So they we really felt that they became more empowered women, and they even did presentations at the parliament in Bangladesh. I'm talking about an intervention in Bangladesh, and. Um, when they were doing the presentation at the parliament saying that we should all work together in Bangladesh to ensure that HIV AIDS will not spread in Bangladesh, the parliamentarians started to cry and they answered uh, to the women. They said, uh, we are so touched with what you're saying because we think that you are dirty women. And nevertheless, you know, you are talking about um you know working together you know for our country um when it was was all over you know we sat down with the women and then we were kind of discussing this and then the women said to us yeah we heard what they said and we agree with them because we are dirty women and that made me realize that we missed a lot of things we had never really addressed the being from my point of view so so um you know, anyway, it was a big lesson uh, for me that we were thinking we were on the right track and we missed uh, stuff. Uh, Portia, I would like to ask you to take a deep dive on the pain point that you shared. Tell a little bit more. Um, so we, in South Africa, we began implementing the project in, I think, in November 2021. And that was um, right in the aftermath of COVID. And it was a time where so many people had been laid off, especially people within the low income sector. It also meant a lot of people were now competing for resources more than ever before. And if I didn't say so initially, our project aimed to impact 70% of refugees and asylum seekers and 30% um, South Africans um, who are vulnerable. 
And our being our main objective was to, after having provided the participants with the employability training, we were then required to link them up with employment. Um, on top of that, there was a growing vigilante movement um, in South Africa, xenophobic attacks everywhere. They were receiving so much um, airtime from the news, social media. And the main aim was to get rid of foreigners in South Africa. And just like our other panelists said, even in South Africa, foreign means black, um, black African, basically. And uh, our, most of our, our participants are mainly foreigners. So these protesters would go around different areas in South Africa, uh, mostly dominated by foreigners harassing people on the streets, looting their businesses, claiming that foreigners were the main culprits of crime in those areas, also taking away they are taking away jobs from South Africans, and they are also taking uh, taking their women. Um, they would also go to different companies that they suspected were hiring foreigners to either loot or protest. So initially, when we would approach employers. Um, trying to link our participants to jobs and available opportunities. As soon as we would provide them with more information on what we do, they would either give us a runaround or not respond at all. Well, some of them. Others were very open to providing us with the necessary information that we were requiring, especially on how to be more employable in South Africa within these low-income low sectors. Um, information, information that they provided us was obviously crucial for our content creation um, and design for our self-reliance workshop um, because also a major influence on, on the content that we deliver in the program is from the feedback that we receive from the participants. For instance, initially when we first meet with the participants, we do something that is called case management, where we assess each and every participant's skills, gaps, and expertise, and we actually build our program and our content design based on the gaps and also based on what our employers are saying, what they're currently needing within their sector. So we also realized that a good majority of our participants were also feeling unsafe, demotivated, and had absolutely no hope for the future. Some just wanted to go home. Um, to their respective countries. So that's how bad it was when you listen to the stories of what happened in their countries. And then somebody says, I would rather go back to die than to stay in this country. It's things that really, really um, got me so emotional, especially when I was conducting these um, case management sessions. And uh, we would go to our employers or from the research that we've done, employers would be saying, um, we need more than, you know, technical skills. We need um, soft skills because anybody, we can train people or we can train people. But if somebody doesn't have a positive attitude or is not able to work for a team or, you know, uh, manage conflict, time management or general self-awareness, then chances of that person being able to you know, not just get the position, but progress are very limited. And we had participants who were feeling hopeless, participants who even struggled to articulate their skills. So knowing this, we then decided to adopt a strength-based approach, um, creating content in a way that empowers our participants, amplifies their strength, reframe their experiences, focusing on resilience and grit, um, instead of being victims 
For instance, we'd also have cases where participants would come to us and they would say that we don't have any experiences. But then when you interrogate, you'd find that this person was either a nanny or this person helped out at a shop within a family. So we also taught them on how to um, reframe those experiences and also you know, understand that those were actually working experiences. So that got them a bit um, motivated. So what we aim to do was to assist them um, in a way that helps them know that they are seen in the project and that whatever they are bringing um, matters, their voices matter. So even our content was centered around people standing up saying, hi, my name is so-and-so and everybody else would clap. Um, our content was also centered around group work where they would come up with ideas and then the people in the audience would also um, advise, comment, or celebrate. So it was, we, need, we knew that we needed to include a lot of content like that within, uh, within our projects. Um, so what we also did was that we stopped approaching employers to blatantly ask them if they can assist in hiring our people. But instead, we asked them to come and be facilitators of certain segments within our program because they were the experts. We were getting the information from them. So we also had a secret objective in doing this. We wanted them to be exposed to our participants while also sensitizing them to the need of hiring refugees, asylum seekers, as well as vulnerable people in South Africa. Um, we would insist that they have lunch with the participants during their workshop um, so that they can be able to hear people's stories. We did the same with uh, our municipal context. We strong, we formed very strong relationship with governments, and that also helped us when we would approach these um, employers in order to come and help us facilitate um, our project. So we required our municipality context because when our participants' shops were looted, um, if they didn't have permits, and they couldn't call the police. So it meant that they were operating illegally. So government officials would come in during workshops and they would assist our, our participants in how to apply. And they would also expose them in what alternative ways they can run their businesses while still waiting for a permit. Um, so this approach has helped quite a bit because um, during the post-monitoring of the project, we found even after the, so the workshop happens in three days, the self-reliance workshops. So you'd have people coming in, um, feeling very, very hopeless, feeling like they don't want to participate. But on the third day, um, people would come in, would, would arrive and people would be excited. And also uh, sharing stories amongst the participants also assisted. We are not where we want to be but we are where we need to be currently. Um, yeah, so I think that's it for me right now. Thank you, thank you so much, Kosia. Uh, um, yeah, any, any clarifying questions for her on the panel? Great question. Uh, Portia, was was there any follow up uh, after the workshop for a kind of like a, a survey in terms of like maybe yeah how they were doing afterwards in terms of that sense of hopelessness or skills that they were learning and able to readapt to their the context they came from? 
Um, yes, so we do we did do like post workshop surveys or post um, program surveys, and we found that because we had managed to link some of them with information and knowledge, and as well as resources, um, helping them, um, um, giving them seed grants for their businesses, there was definitely a change of attitude. People were able to support themselves. Uh, people were able to support their families. So their attitudes change. And the fact that they knew that they could do it um, was what helped a lot. We didn't impact everyone. However, the ones that we impacted, there was definitely um, some kind of a mental shift, even though um, obviously we, we, we did not have the resources to monitor it long-term, um, but there was an immediate change, especially with those that were able to access income and change their livelihoods. Any other questions? And please, panelists, think about your story that you're going to share. Okay, Warda, you want to uh, share? Sure. So, um, you know, as I'm thinking about these interdevelopment goals and, and this particular one that I talked about relating um, and caring for others in the world, you know, human rights is something that comes up as part of that to me. And that's something that I'm very passionate about because all of these topics that I just mentioned fall under human rights and civil rights. And, um, you know, it's something that I focused on in grad school and it's really just about wishing for others what you wish for yourself. And I think that that's what it fundamentally comes down to and that people forget. And I think that people abroad sometimes feel like those of us who are living in the U.S., I mean, I can speak from, from a U.S. perspective, don't have that same compassion towards them as we do for ourselves or people that look like us or quote-unquote American or European. And one story that I can share that exemplifies that is when I was working for the Friends Committee, I got to go to Gaza and the West Bank and Israel as part of this, um, just a tour of the region that we had been working on um, to meet with NGOs and human rights activists and mental health advocates um, and some uh, parliament members, et cetera. And I remember when I was in Gaza, I went to a school, it was an UNRWA school where there were um, girls who were studying there. They were probably like in middle school age. They were very young. And they had this kind of program for us that they put together where they stood up and read poems and told us about their lives. And one line that really resonated with me that one girl wrote in her poem was that, you know, you will not find children here. You will only find adults in small bodies. And that really hit me because, you know, the experiences that they were going through made them grow up very quickly. They didn't get to enjoy their childhood. And so, you know, my supervisor and I who were there, we got very emotional listening listening to these stories. And the, the, the girls and their teachers, et cetera, were quite surprised that we got emotional. They thought, you know, I don't know what they were expecting, that we wouldn't feel touched by these stories or hearing about their suffering. But it just made me think that maybe there is this perception that um, you know, those of us in the West don't care about the plight of people who are living in, um, in in unfortunate environments. And it's just, it just goes to show that this human side of relating and caring to others in the world is something that we have to cultivate and continuously work on um, because we don't want people to feel that we are insensitive or not you know, caring about their plight. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. We all, you know, work in NGOs or in um, kind of advocacy or foreign affairs field where we want to pursue this, but just the general kind of 
impression overall of the country or of the West is that from their from their perspective, which I noticed. So I thought that was really interesting and um, also unfortunate and also gives us something to work toward of really demonstrating with our work and our rhetoric that we do care about human rights abroad for all people um, and in, in the U.S. as well. Thanks, Wada. Sophia, your your uh, reflection, your story, Portia, as a reaction on Portia's uh, deep dive. Yeah, yeah, I'm really thinking it's a challenging exercise because these are such big themes that show up in so many ways. And yeah, it's common in our organizations and contexts, but also really different. But yeah, I mean, I think just getting down to the, like you were saying, the human side of caring for others in the world and, um, a lot of times, I guess I'm thinking like in our own organization, some of the ways that we've been trying to do that, even just among ourselves, even like as a step before seeing how we're doing it with like those outside the organization or in our work. And I guess my mind for some reason is going to some of the work I've done with a kind of internal anti-racism and decoloniality network. We started to form, I think after the events of George Floyd and other things in America that were happening, there was a lot going on in the world and not so much conversation happening in our own organization. And a lot of times when we're part of these institutions that are about fighting inequity and kind of being neutral about a lot of things, we sometimes take it so far that we don't, I guess, stop to question the ways that we're part of some of these systems or replicating some of these patterns of not seeing each other in real ways, even among ourselves. Um, and how that then translates to the ways that we do our, for instance, communications of people on the other side of the world and then how that permeates these patterns again of not caring and affecting the systems and I mean the process so far has been a lot of just creating spaces that are peer-led among ourselves to ask some of these hard questions about yeah not just how we see each other but I guess like the way it, it manifests and like who who speaks and how in a room and how you know some of the norms go unquestioned or we just see them as neutral um, and yeah, it's been a really generative process so far. I think the peer-led thing has been helpful and that we talk about things we might not feel safe to do so otherwise. And it feels like we're really in it together so that when you challenge one another, you know that you have each other's best interests in mind. Um, so this is a bit of like a departure from that example, but I guess just relating again to what it takes to, I don't know, change the ways that we relate and care to each other in any context. No, I, I think you raise very important points. I mean, that's what we, I think what we try to do with today's session as well, by introducing the inner development goals to to really, you know, uh, I, I think I failed to mention that. I, I think every issue or problem has at least four perspectives. You know, that's not only it and it's, that's not only processes and systems that you need to solve. You also need to do the work around yourself, the I, and then the we as community. And I think many of you have, have raised that and, and the need for that, that you need to find a balance with it. And, you know, and I think discussions around DEI has, has really confronted us with that. You can't, you know, change the system around you without doing the work yourself and as an or within the organization, as a community. Um, and, and that's what I'm hearing in, in the examples that you give here as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, Maybe Kate and, and Diana are, are chasing me and they are right. Um, so I would like to take a jump and ask Warda to do the deep dive on her pain point. And uh, 
Is that okay, Warda? Um, can you expand on what you would like in the deep dive? So you shared with us your pain point, and we would like to go, you know, ask you to to explain a little bit more about what that actually means for you in your you know daily life and in your work. Yeah. So I, I talked about Islamophobia as as the pain point and kind of racism um, and anti refugee uh, sentiments. And in my in the daily life, you know, we see it every day in the news. You'll see, you know, whether it comes into like anti Asian hate crimes that we've been we've been seeing um, rise, or whether it's strictly Islamophobic hate crimes, where you'll see people that are being pushed in front of a subway because they're wearing a hijab, or somebody thinks that they're Muslim, or um, you know, even the first, uh, you know, attack after 9-11 was against a Sikh person who he was wearing a turban and somebody thought he was Muslim and, and they shot him at a gas station. And so just this general, um, you know, sentiment that, that you know, Muslims or Asians or migrants or minorities are the enemy or they're un-American, you know, we see this all the time in those types of actions. We see it in political rhetoric, um, you know, even just now, we, you know, in Congress, there's always things going on with, um, you know, people who gets to be on the foreign committee, the foreign affairs committee, who not, who gets to be on certain committees. Um, they're always like passing resolutions against each other because somebody made a white supremacist comment, et cetera. And so it, it, it happens in all spheres, in all spheres, and, and it happens in the media too. Um, you know, we see uh, movies like, uh, I think there's one called American Sniper. I didn't watch it myself, but uh, from what I understand, it's about a soldier, you know, like killing. Uh, I think it's Arabs or in an Arab country. And I remember I was I was pretty active on Twitter then, and I remember looking online and seeing that people would leave the theater and say, "Now, you know, I want to go shoot an Arab." And that's really disturbing that our media can get away with putting out these stories that can endanger somebody's lives just just because of their identity or what they look like. Um, and so, you know, we have a responsibility for the welfare of our entire country, all Americans, not just people that look a certain way. And so we need to make sure that our media or politicians or policies are not endangering them. And so that's something that um, we continue to work on. And, you know, like I said, it's not exclusive to the Muslim community. It's, you know, the Asian community, other minorities, community, African-American community. We saw Black Lives Matter also showing all of the racial discrepancies happening in the U.S. for that community. Um, and so just really viewing people with a human rights lens, I think, and through a human lens, can I think ameliorate a lot of what is happening. And right now it's more of like fear of the unknown or hatred against the unknown um, instead of, of of cohabitation and 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 being able to live together. Thanks, Warda. Any any clarifying questions on the panelists for Warda? Okay, if not, then I'm asking you to respond with a story. Michael, you want to try? Well, I just um, I, I I agree with what Sophia mentioned a moment ago. It's hard to kind of. Uh, come up with that narrative story because what I just heard was so precise and 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 clarifying I want to kind of sit with it for a bit uh from Warta and 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 kind of uh kind of wonder about rest with it for a minute. I I um I, I think that uh you know one of the th one of the examples that that we have in our Maybe in my own scholarship and in, in uh, on, on cruelty, how we understand systemic cruelty is how it conceals itself, and how 
uh, even at the level of policy, um, when we were working on on racial gerrymandering in 1993 in the state of North Carolina, uh, we would hear some uh, who would uh, you know be advocates for one position you would imagine. But often um, at, over time, you would realize that they were um, it was a kind of a concealed rhetoric. And they weren't actually advocating for the position. Um, they were uh, they were actually um, being obstructionist to it. And I just uh, I remember those moments and thinking, if uh, if that's what it's like to uh, to be working around policy all day long, it must be quite a challenge. I remember thinking that, and um, I think that's my first just initial response. And uh, I imagine um, that there's also a number who, you know, of course, that you're meeting were very authentic, who are doing amazing work. But I, if I could ask a question related to this story, it might be, how do you address? Or do you have those moments where you see that the values are going this way, what they're saying is going this way? What's how do you address that in your in your work to to hold up that which you mentioned that core value of the human side uh, of our shared you know the kind of narrative we are all wishing the wish that we would have for one another as you expressed it. Uh, sorry, can you repeat the last part of that question? You were saying how do you reconcile? morals or sorry you said can you repeat that the wish that we have for one another to treat others as we would have ourselves mm -hmm. treated uh, how do you reconcile those moments where you know, the value may be going one way you know, i'm in favor of this but in fact someone is actually pursuing an obstructionist mm -hmm. uh, method that is contrary to what they say they're they're trying to achieve i think it's a balance right i mean you have to think about the you have to think about the environment that you're in. And if you're in the political environment, that happens a lot. I mean, people have a lot of different motivations for policies that they pursue. It may not be because they actually think a certain community is bad or negative, but for whatever reason, it's for their political gain or strategic for them at that point to go with that decision. So I think recognizing what environment that decision falls in is really important too. Same thing with the media. You know, our really racist and you know xenophobic um media whether it's movies or tv shows are they getting a lot of views is it something where it's like money and box office that's motivating people to continue to make these things so i think in each of these different industries you have to take a deeper dive and look and see what's the motivation behind it because i don't believe that people hate just to hate especially at least in the public eye i don't think that you know i think humans are inherently good i think hatred is taught and then if people are professional haters which they are in these situations there's a reason for that so i think you know focusing on those areas and coming up with alternative systems to either push back or improve those systems that are fostering such behavior is is the key and and that's how you kind of reconcile you know you know if values are going one way and actions going another way you try to align it by making sure that the interests of both are met and going towards a positive path. Um, and in doing so, you can bring in some people that um, you know may not necessarily uh, agree with you on a, a certain value. So for instance, like you could have an interfaith working group against hatred, even though those people are of all different faiths and their beliefs are different, but they still have this combined value and, and um, incentive to work together because they knew that improving the situation for one community 
will improve the situation for all of them. So it, it really just becomes about strategy and recognizing what is the motivation behind somebody's behavior and then trying to find a way to turn it back and, and be more aligned. Okay, thanks, Borda. Porsche, you would like to react or? Um... Um, yes, um, this reminds me of a time when we had a social cohesion workshop in one of the townships in South Africa, where um, a migrant um, stood up and said that um, he finds it so sad that South Africans are the ones who are perpetuating these xenophobic attacks when, uh, sorry, Black South Africans, when Black South Africans were, should understand what it's like to, you know, to experience prejudice uh, because of our history with um, apartheid, racism, and things like that. And also um, <clears throat> these things happening in Africa, because South Africa is Africa. So um, I guess for me, it was um, when I heard that, my initial reaction was that, are you trying to compare apartheid to xenophobia, I didn't realize that I had minimized their experiences or magnified my experiences and compared to their experiences. So um, it made me question my own bias, biases and truly evaluate myself and allow myself to unlearn because I was now the practitioner. I was now the person who was you know, doing these intervention programs. And if my opinions are this way towards the migrants in South Africa, then that's probably going to affect my implementation or my impact or the extent of my impact. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's very, it, it's very um, emotional. It can get very, very emotional, especially when you're hearing people's experiences of yeah, so I, I think that's what um, that's what I thought about that experience of uh, somebody saying that you South Africans you are doing the same thing that was done to you um, by the former white government. Um, so it's it's yeah that resonated with me. I want to call attention to Mark's um, comment in the chat about um, you know hearing this recurring theme of necessary of personal development. Um, and social and transformation, how that that goes in and in. I absolutely believe that's the case. And I think Portia, you gave a really good example of that, of you know, examining your own biases when you're working in your respective spaces. And um I I always think about that. Um, I remember when I was working with, with the Quakers, we took this racial kind of test of like you had to like click on one person or of another of what you preferred, and then you would find out like how and like not how racist were you, but like how, what your bias was. I think it's called racial bias training. Um, and it really sticks out to me because uh, the answers are like right in front of you. And maybe you didn't think about it that way because it's not a, a conscious thing maybe that you do. Maybe it's subconscious. Um, so I think that personal development is really, really key. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great programs out there now on personal development and leadership training that I think are really important for people that are working in this space so that they can, you know, examine something from all sides and really understand a situation fully instead of coming in with their own agenda and deciding that this is the way that I want to do it because this is my perspective and really listening and seeing what would be better for society as a whole. 
right yeah I totally agree with you, Warda, and, and thanks, Mark, for your for your notes. Um, I, I'm of the time, uh, Sophia. I would like you know I, I would like to give you the choice to either go for the deep dive and share that, or you know kind of share you know whatever you've heard and would you know uh, up to you. Um, I think just the way my brain works, it's easier to share the stuff I've already thought about. Yeah, that's like sure, sure, sure. To what everybody yeah. said. Um, so I guess, yeah, going into my pain point and how we started to look at it, maybe it's a bit of a bigger picture, broader one, but I think a lot of times in development these days, we're talking more about systems change and kind of the, the divide between our big intentions, like the SDGs and the inadequacy of all of our short-term kind of siloed fixes to reach them. Um, and I think as UNDP, we're among the actors that really are in a good position to help with governments and others to reimagine re not only the what of development, but the how, our ways of working, capabilities, all these things below the tip of the change iceberg. Um, and kind of within this bigger discourse and realm of interventions being applied right now around systems change, I think the pain point top of mind for me, which has also been kind of a compass for our work at UNDP, um, has to do with the dangers that consistently surface whenever we or government have intentions that I think contain language like participatory policy making or the notion of inclusive decision making or even leaving no one behind when we don't slow down to one understand kind of where and how each of us is part of the systems that have impeded inclusivity or participatory practice to date so kind of not seeing the issue of lack of inclusion or power imbalances necessarily as a gap or a blind spot but as a function of systems that are in fact working exactly how they were designed to work. Um, and then two, when we don't slow down to ensure that, you know, we're not just simply translating these intentions to mean bringing more people around a table, but actually considering who set the rules of how things work at that table, who has the most legitimacy and authority, what modes of sharing and learning are considered the gold standard. So actually really paying attention to issues of power and kind of all the personal discomfort that's required to really get into those questions. Um, and then also, Third, when we don't slow down to kind of question the ways we devalue forms of change and impact that fall into the realm of the intangible or hard to measure, as we've talked about. Um, and because of this, then we continue, you know, perpetually responding to crises instead of actually getting to some of the invisible stuff that causes systems to change as a whole. Um, so one of the ways as UNDP, we started to think about this or address it just from one corner of the organization, specifically building on kind of all the disruption that came about in COVID. And in 2021, um, we started with just opening up new types of spaces to allow our own colleagues and other UN agencies to do some of this necessary slowing down just talked about. Um, we partnered with um, an organization called the MIT Presencing Institute initially to do some of this through a dialogue series where we explored the potential of awareness-based modes of collective action. Um, and in these colleagues explored approaches um, related to things like mindfulness or deep listening, opportunities to build meaningful connection in safe spaces without judgment. Um, and then we also built on this and did a four-month action learning lab with about 400 personnel from seven UN entities to see if we could help give colleagues some of the inspiration and courage to apply these practices directly to their organizational or systemic challenges they are addressing. So a lot of times people are open to these practices, but they see it as a side thing for personal development or for mental health, which they can be, but how we get people to see it as actually a way to reorient how they make decisions and innovate as institutions. Um, and we also did a program like this for, for our senior leaders. And some of what we've been finding is that colleagues really, really appreciate the time to slow down and being given the permission, in 
fact, to have space for reflection, to practice listening to themselves and others in new ways, and to be in these spaces of work where the intention isn't necessarily to come out with a specific tangible outcome, but to actually see the process of building connections as an outcome for the future in itself. Um, and also just realizing that while many of these practices are practices are really quite basic in their essence, you know, things like the value of forming meaningful bonds of trust with the people who you're trying to lead change with, it can actually feel really radical in these traditional bureaucracies where it's not something we generally do. Um, and we've also kind of been focusing more on the, the role of dialogue itself as a place for creating microcosms for different cultures to exist and almost creating new patterns and new worlds in small spaces so that they can trickle out. And right now we're working with colleagues from the Human Development Report, which talks a lot about novel uncertainties and insecurities um, and how we navigate them. And we're thinking about ways that we can leverage the tools of how we intentionally design dialogue to you know, hold space for a collective imagination and sense-making and to essentially rely as much on the tools of the heart alongside other tools like quantitative data or financial solutions um, to really bring them together um, in the space. Um, and I guess the overarching ongoing challenge with this still is bridging the tools of mind, heart, and hand when we work in organizations that you know delegitimize a lot of these and aren't made to function in that way. Um, so I'll leave it there. Thanks, Sophia. Yeah, that was great. Any uh, clarifying questions for Sophia? Just wanted to ask about um, you talked about having staff or people think about like have listening time and you know time to think. Can you tell us like practically how that's worked out or what kind of some of the outcomes were? Yeah. So. I think part of why we started it as a more loose thing with just dialogues and why we tried to do it as a more structured action learning lab and then also certificate program where people who were part of it kind of had to commit to go through the journey and also come in or form throughout the practice like with a challenge they want to address. It can be a leadership challenge that's more, you know, something just within their team, how they want to shape relationships, or it could be, you know, they're supporting the government on some big climate issue and having to form policy around it and want novel approaches on how to address it. And taking some of the tools we used in this space to see if it could change the ways they're doing that. And I guess, again, still not being too attached to a specific outcome that's immediate and tangible, because this is more about just laying the groundwork. And I mean, colleagues did express definitely coming out of it, like it's trying things they wouldn't have otherwise, um, whether it's, you know, starting a meditation session ongoing with their own office, like this coming from the senior leader of the office, um, or working with like uh, a multi-stakeholder initiative to work on like futures-oriented policies and bringing in like more imaginative things. I guess I'm speaking in very broad terms, but it's to say, I think what helped people be more courageous and broad was a combination of actually having some structure to do this open-ended thinking. So the Presencing Institute was a helpful partner just because they have specific tools, whether it's related to storytelling or mindfulness or others, um, or even something as simple as peer coaching circles was one of the most profound tools we had, which it's actually similar to this, where people are in a group, they share a challenge, people don't give advice, but they just learn to listen and reflect back what they're hearing. Um, so I think so much of it, again, just comes back to things that seem basic, but we're not really doing them in the places they should be done or would be useful. Yeah. Thanks, Sophia. Um, yeah, anybody would like to share a story from the panel? <laughs> I can tell you two quickly if nobody goes. 
Um, you know, the first one, and, and I think Laurel knows because you, you said that you're listening to the podcast is, you know, I started uh, one and a half years ago this podcast and, um, you know, then it was recorded and I had to edit it and I'm listening to the podcast and it took me three hours to edit the podcast because I every time I heard something that I had not heard when I was having the conversation. So I realized I was not as good as a listener as I thought I was. So I really had to train myself to really listen. Um, that's that's a little story. Another story is, is I, I was in a meeting in CWS and I did a survey among the, the, the members of, of uh, that particular meeting. And I asked, uh, why are we here? And people had, we were using Mentimeter. So you could, um, nobody knows who's giving the answer. So, you know, all these answers comes up about uh, why are we here? And it was one answer uh, that said, um, not applicable. And until today, I don't know what to do with that. So um, anyway, but it says something, you know, about the environments that we are working in uh, at times, right? Um, you know, a cognizant of the time, and, and so I'm, I'm going to jazz it up, as people, you know, my colleagues often know I do. Um, the four panelists, I'm going to give you 30 seconds to share, you know, a question, a thought, um, or anything you could like to share in 30 seconds about uh, today. Um, Michael. Uh, I, I really like what Mark uh, wrote in the uh, in the chat, and I also appreciate what Laurel uh, noted as well. And uh, I think both signal on the one hand, the work to be done. And, uh, you know, and the, on the other, it's, it's the fact that this, the impact of the pandemic has, has affected um, more than we realize. And we have to keep asking um, people and communities where those effects are. And then, and then the systems have to respond wherever they can. Borsha would like to go 30 seconds to share. I think being a um, field worker, I've learned the value of um, seeing people and acknowledging that, acknowledging that you see them. For instance, in Isizulu, how you greet a person, you say, which means I see you. Um, so there is a lot that we can do as practitioners when we begin to hear see people and also listen to them and not listen for them or speak for them. Um, I think that's what I've realized and that's what I've implemented, the value of seeing people and acknowledging that you are a person, you exist and you've got an opinion and you've got something that the world needs. Thank you. Thanks so much. Warda? Yeah, I just appreciated the conversation and really, um... I think all these examples and stories just go to show how much the development goals are important when it comes to, uh, you know, sustainable development goals and just our overall improving the nature of humans um, and humankind and our societies at large. Um, and it's a it's a good reminder that change starts with ourselves and um, that no matter which where we are in life, whether we're, you know, just starting out or very old and experienced, that we all have a responsibility to to do that, to, you know, examine, ask questions, and, you know, try to um, be the best we can be in order to improve the situations around us. Sophia. 
thanks. Yeah, I guess there could be a lot of takeaways, but I guess this one might seem a little random, but the one coming to me now is actually related to the value of religion within development processes. I think something about this mix of people and openly bringing the topic of religion into the room as somebody who's been working in, you know, multilateral spaces where it almost feels like there's this I don't know, this avoidance of this whole part of society that shapes many values and, of course, has been misused as a tool for oppression in many instances. But if we're now talking more these days about inner transformation and um, values and all these things, that it's it's empowering to bring it into the conversation, not as something that excludes people, but as just one of the many social technologies that brings value, especially when we're talking about epistemological plurality as, as a value, I think, for a lot of this work. So I appreciate this conversation. Thank you so much. I promised that I would come up with some takeaways and I, I tell you already in advance that I will fail miserably, but I'm going to say a couple of things. Um, I'm also aware that some of you might have to you know, go because it's already 2.32. So I totally understand that I don't feel offended. Um, but I feel that for those who have time that I, I need to try to, to close this down and then I will still stay on to if you have any questions that you might have. So so uh, I will be here uh, almost forever if you if you want me to. I, I heard a lot of things, but I, I hope, you know, one of the takeaways is that, um, you know, something that I try to bring to the table is that... Um, we really need to have at least four perspectives if, perspectives as we try to tackle issues and, and, and problems. So, um, you know, the I perspective, the we perspective, the it and the its. And, and yes, that's a result of a, of a philosopher that I really like, Ken Wilber, who developed the integral theory. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of my uh, basis. What I also heard is that, and I really appreciate that, is that um, if you work with people, you need to, start where they are and really it starts with listening um and and something that i really appreciated from cws is wherever we work we never come in uh you know saying what do you need um but we always say what do you have so you know that's an asset based approach that that was really started in our work in in uh, the african countries where we have worked um, but now it's, it's you know, everybody knows in CWS, we might not be able to articulate it all in a similar way. Uh, but I, I think that's really something that I also heard that, you know, you were trying to do. The other thing is what is helpful for me. And I, I think that's, you know, some of you have said indirectly as well, everybody's perspective is true, albeit partial. And, um, you know, if you start um, and really listening and having a dialogue with each other, um, the fact that the other, you know, might have something that you can agree with um, is, you know, is, is, is a, a big step forward. And especially in this world that is more uh, polarizing, uh, you know, by the day. But I, I see uh, a lot of hope. The last thing that I wanted to, to share is something that I experienced myself two days ago. I was, I like to, to, uh, to rent nowadays and, and especially medicate and Diana know that, uh, oh, you know, um, but uh, this is a, a YouTube a little movie that you can find. It's, I think, three and a half minutes uh, made by the conscious leadership. And it, and it, it is about um, how do you make your obstacles into allies? 
And so instead of, oh, this is done to me and, you know, you're, you're angry, getting angry, uh, but see people or other issues as allies, it's for me. And um, so if you start working a lot on that inner stuff uh, with yourself as well as community, I think we can continue to make enormous strides forward. And we have to make strides forward because we, we haven't even talked about that today. And that's climate change. We are, you know, messing up our world. It's going down the drain. And we have created that together and we have to solve it together. I, I think COVID has showed us that we are all interconnected. Um, and we need to build on some of those, you know, good things that started uh, during COVID that we realized to uh, really make this world uh, a better place. Um, so anyway, that's that. Those are kind of my uh, uh, takeaways. I would like to thank you so much for your time and uh, especially for panelists. Uh, awesome. Um, we will make this. Uh, session into a podcast so if you came in later it will ultimately be available so um yeah i'm, I'm staying on if you have questions but i i uh, i'm especially for for is is already in the evening in south africa so i totally understand if you have to uh leave if you can stay maybe you know um our participants have um questions still that uh, they would like to Ask. Thank you for moderating, Maurice. I have to drop and thank you to the fellow panelists. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Warda. Take care. Thanks, Maurice. Terrific, terrific to be with, with you all. And thank you from me too. It was a great experience, especially for me. Yeah. Yeah. As a third language, English is my third language. So <laughs> I'm grateful that you all got to understand what I was trying to say and communicate. Thank you once again. You were great, Portia. No. Oh. We're happy to, to have you. Yeah, happy to both. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank bye you bye. so much, Borja. <clears throat> thank you all. Take care. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank See you. Now. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye. <laughs>